Hey there, and welcome to Thrivers, nonprofit leadership for the next normal. I'm your host, Tucker Wanamaker, the CEO of Thrive Impact. Our mission is to solve nonprofit leader burnout, because burnout is the enemy of creating positive change. And we want to connect you with impactful mission-driven leaders and ideas so that you can learn to thrive in today's nonprofit landscape. And today I have a, a most wonderful guest, somebody I've uh, been looking forward to connecting to all of you on this Thrivers podcast. Uh, he's been a, a gentleman that uh, some of you may have seen on LinkedIn. He writes a ton, has a lot of great content around fundraising and generosity. Um, Tim Sarantonio, it is great to be with you, sir, uh, on this podcast today. Tucker, thank you for having me. I am excited to be here. Well, and so for those of you who don't know Tim, so Tim's uh, the director of corporate brand for Neon One, but he's also an internationally renowned speaker on generosity, on technology, and some of the trends around this in the social goods sector. He's helped a variety of causes raise over three million. He also moved into providing support for thousands of nonprofits with his work at Neon One, and he's spoken at multiple conferences. AFP Icon is an example, NTC, TEDx, he also holds a Certificate of Philanthropic Psychology, that sounds awesome, Tim, uh, from the Institute of Sustainable Philanthropy. He lives in, I'm going to get this right, Tim, Niskayuna, New Niskayuna. York. Did I, did I nail it? Did I nail you it? You nailed it. You nailed uh, it. Uh, it's got a lovely wife, three lovely daughters, and two perfectly fine cats. For those of you yeah, who may not are... like cats, but these are perfectly fine ones, apparently. I, I like cats, but they're, they're fine at this point. <laughs> So. Well, Tim, I have so appreciated uh, our multiple conversations um, and just appreciating your uh, your leadership uh, around the thinking in, the, in this space of the next normal. Uh, and, and I know that one of the topics that we wanted to hit on today is is generosity experiences. And even when you shared that with me a couple weeks ago and we were talking about it, I was like, oh, this is a next normal topic, right? <laughs> uh, this is a this is a topic of people like we're trying. So many are, are trying to go back to the old normal, right? Or the way it used to be in sometimes some ways. But we're not in that space anymore, right? We're leading in the next normal, hence the title of this podcast. And so around this topic, Tim, let's just dive right in. Uh, first of all, help us understand a little bit about what is a what exactly is a generosity experience just to give a little definition to that and then i want to dive into some of the pains or the issues that nonprofit leaders are experiencing regarding creating those types of experiences a generosity experience is not let's just let's start with what it's not a generosity experience is not when somebody gives you money it is not uh, uh, signing up for a newsletter, right? Those types of things. A generosity experience is the end-to-end -end relationship that you build with an individual from the moment that they become aware of your organization to the ultimate end of the relationship. That is the full generosity experience. And so that means that giving money is only a fraction of what somebody should be thinking about when it comes to their revenue creation, kind of the, the ways that they're gonna chart out and project uh, when money's coming in, how money's coming in, 
that's that's just one piece of the puzzle. I appreciate that you're you're unpacking that this is this is a journey that you and this relationship that you have is going on. And how do you how do you create that journey and that experience that unpacks and unlocks their generosity and the joy around that potentially um, so that it becomes something, uh, you know, I'm thinking about a, a, one of my favorite fundraisers. Uh, her name is Serena. And like she talks so much about uh, almost like measuring the impact of for the donor, literally, like yes. the impact that that brings to them and thinking about it, how we do with on the programmatic side. Why don't we think about that, you know, in terms of impact evaluation on the donor side, in a sense? Um, Professor Jen Shang at the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy in the UK, where where I got my certificate in philanthropic psychology. She's done research into what exactly is philanthropic psychology, and, and this is getting into the mind of the donor and their mindset. And there's three stages and three types of giving that people engage in and and the generosity experience is activated best at the last one so let's let's so let's start with the kind of the basic it's a situational gift Mm -hmm. so that means that somebody gave because you asked somebody gave because something happened it's it's not intentional it's it's a just a thing and it's very reactive right Mm -hmm. so it's giving tuesday that's a situational gift somebody you know somehow you stood out in somebody's inbox on that type of message they clicked it they gave there you go Mm -hmm. that's very transactional a relational gift sounds good but it's in many ways a one-to-one not sustainable situation Mm, it means that if a variable in the relationship changes Mm -hmm. then the donor doesn't feel as supported and so an example of this is somebody who's been giving to a nonprofit for many many years and then the founder retires right or passes away or in the worst case scenario is ousted and those gifts stop coming mm-hmm. that's a relational gift it means that there was something that affected the bedrock of the relationship between the donor and the organization mm board member giving you see this in peer-to-peer fundraising in a little bit less drastic uh framing where it's like i gave because my friend is doing this race and that's a relational gift but if that person stops fundraising for the organization they're probably going to not opt into your newsletter and stuff like that they're like why i don't even remember giving to this nonprofit." (laughs) well it kind of reminds me tim on that front like it reminds me of uh like a almost like quid pro quo fundraising, meaning like, yes. you know, hey, I'll I'll scratch your back and pay for that table at your gala, and you'll scratch my back and I'll mm-hmm. pay for that table, right? That that is only based there and becomes. I don't know if you've seen this in that. To your point, that it's le- leads to donor and fundraiser fatigue. Like yeah. if you're a, a board member, right, and you're like scratching the back of somebody else and ba- vice versa, it, it sounds like that. That relationship is a 
it becomes a struggle. So one thing I want to flag on the topic of donor fatigue real quick is that from a transactional standpoint, it doesn't exist, meaning that that people will continue mm. to give in the right circumstances. There is really no uh, threshold on a person's capacity, capacity to be generous. And as a sector, there's a lot of generosity happening. And and so I am being nitpicky, Tucker. I understand no, that. No, that's good. Something. But, 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 but then going back further, what does exist is crappy appeal fatigue, crappy <laughs> communications fatigue. That is, is widespread. And that's going to get into the generosity crisis that that we'll talk about which is the name of a new book that came out that i want to make sure mm. that we touch on i'd love um, to and that's a big thing that they that that uh nathan and brian the authors of this uh book uh, flag is is poor communication poor mm. personalization things like that that's one element here that that leads to it so relational giving um there's a there's always a kind of a, a process it, mm -hmm. it's a continuum that people can be on one side or the other and you kind of need that balance yeah and the, and the balance is where you can't have a situational gift typically if somebody's like going to give you five thousand bucks right like that that very rarely happens it's more that even the the larger donors start out with a small gift a lot right. of people have to remember that that the mackenzie scott situation of somebody blessing your organization with three million dollars is an outlier and so that's a that's a note to all board members out there as well please stop asking these are how all you can outliers <laughs> just you know mackenzie scott will be giving people people money who are telling a good story regardless, regardless of whether she gives the money or not. Mm -hmm. I digress. <laughs> so, so how do we get to the ultimate? What is the ultimate form of giving in, in, in terms of the donor's psychology and mindset? That would be identity-based giving. Mm. Identity-based giving means that the donor themselves can look in the mirror and basically see the cause replicated. Hmm. Wow. And so people activate in a self-actualized way psychologically when they feel competent, they feel connected, and they feel that they made the decision on their own, autonomous. Mm. So competent. I gave to this organization and they're not going to misuse my money. Mm. I see the candid bronze seal on their website and that, that's fine to me, right? By the yeah. way, don't bother going past bronze. if you, you don't need to go after silver or gold for candid, by the way. That's uh, <laughs> just... Th little pro tip there from a finance <laughs> finance thing if you have a board member telling you to focus on that don't just get the bronze and move on but but the thing is is that like that makes a donor feel okay right like these are mm -hmm. these are little indicators in our sector that that you know could be up for debate tucker but mm -hmm. people want to feel like i'm not given to the next you know terrible thing that's going to be sucking money out of of yeah. it and funneling it you know whatever happened with the weird crypto stuff and effective altruism and they're all giving to each other's charities right like people mm -hmm. don't want that 
Yep. So the um, connectedness is that this is actually where it gets different than something like an e-commerce situation where in e-commerce you make the decision and it's like the payoff is on an individual way. It's like I bought the arcade machine and then the payoff happens when I get the arcade machine. Mm -hmm. In a generosity experience flow, the payoff is already there when somebody gives. They're, hmm. they're already primed. They're excited. Yeah. The trick is to make them feel connected to a larger community. Hmm. If you get them to give, if you then can demonstrate you're not alone, people really love that. We're individuals, but we're not. Love that. And and this is, this is some really um, – I've been reading um, – an interesting book on uh, crowds and power about this type of thing, where it's mm-hmm. kind of that understand, like part, no, needing to be part of the herd type yeah. situation. So then to, to wrap it up, because I'm being rambly right now, Tucker. So uh, this is great. No, keep going. Keep going. Well, the, the, uh, the, the autonomous one is a fun one because that's, that's where you get into the ethics of your storytelling. Because ultimately, every generosity experience design has to come from an understanding that you're a brand. And Mm. a brand is a story that makes people feel something. It's not your logo or anything like that. Again, I'm director of corporate brands, so this is... You think about this stuff, too. I think about this Mm. a lot. But, But where the autonomy comes in is that the donor didn't feel guilted into Mm. giving. So if you're using, you know the Sarah McLaughlin music playing over, you know, sad dogs, <laughs> you know, is that sustainable? Mm. Is that, you know, and is that, is that something that's playing to, to a person's guilt versus their want to actually mm. make a difference? Mm. We talked a lot about during the certificate course, the differences even between, you know, guilt, shame, you know things like that yeah there's a difference like why you know if you feel guilty versus i have shame versus you know even more deeper things where it's attacking your very soul like every uh, from an identity standpoint everybody wants to think that they're a good person yeah so if you you do something that violates somebody's inner thinking that it's like you're implying no you are a bad person versus you did a bad thing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and that's the, the opposite where it gets to the positive side is giving right and this yeah. is where where the generosity experience really comes alive is when you get into it's a person who gave not that they gave a gift everybody out there go and check your donation receipts right now for your online donation you know if you have something where you can edit the copy I'm going to bet most people have one that says, thank you for your gift of X dollars made on Y date. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Yep. It's going to start out like that. You know, thank you for donating to the blah, blah, blah fund or thank you for it's, it's that you're starting with. Thank you for this. But a identity based copy change is you are a generous person. Hmm. because you gave x hmm. dollars on y date so so even changing the flow of the the you know english is fascinating folks 
It's an infuriating language. I have three young children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I totally get that too. To teach it is wackadoodle, but it, it's still the order of things matter. Yeah. And so if you start with the person first as a basic principle when you're doing your design, you start with the person, not the money, uh, you, can, you can go a really long way with that principle. Well, so Tim, you're getting into what are the pains or yeah. the issues? Uh, I think I love, I really appreciate you framing this up around the three different types of gifts and under identity giving. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. Are the three components, really helpful framing and in creating a, a generosity experience around particularly identity giving, I would, mm -hmm. I'm assuming is where that's going. So, but where, as you already started getting into a little bit, like the copy as an example, uh, where are folks struggling? in creating generosity experiences where are these where are the pains or the issues uh within this so i had the pleasure of at the time of this taping uh i just had gotten i got back from new york city and there was an event for uh, a new book called the generosity crisis and it's by nathan sheppel and brian crimmins and i think I'm excited to read the book, but the gist of it, because I've known Nathan for a long time and I know kind of the basic things because we've talked about it a lot. He's he's mm -hmm. very much on the forefront, very much a futurist in terms of where the technology can be. You know, one of the, the most uh, fascinating and smartest people around artificial intelligence in the sector. So mm. so I pay attention to what he does a lot. And so he him and his partner looked at all the data and I've been looking at similar data. And when you get down to it, the average new donor to a new, an organization on an individual level, and most giving is individual gifts. Yep. You might hear about grants and you might hear about, you know, corporate giving. Folks, the money's in individual giving. Mm. Unless you're a service grant from the government that's the about the only thing that's dwarfing all of this. But the things you can really control where your destiny can be your own is individual individuals. Giving. Yeah. And so when you get down to it, eight out of 10 people who donate to your organization for the first time this year will not be back next year. Wow. Let that sink in and then compound that by the money that you spent to acquire those folks, which is typically more than the money you initially bring in. Eight out of ten, so eighty percent, based on yeah. the data from generosity. The fundraising crisis. effect in this project. Fundraising, the fundraising effect. effect in this project actually analyzes the individual retention rates. The generosity crisis folks are looking at a bunch of different data sets, and they're mm -hmm. kind of talking about these different data trends. FEP, I imagine, is one of the primary ones that they're citing there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, the crisis comes down to. Uh, one, a large centralization of focus on major donors only. I'm I'm going to get the six seven figure gift, mm -hmm. and what's do what's what's happening is that it's killing the the potential for any other type of small dollar gifts. I literally for for our company, we give out donations as as part of our you know, corporate social responsibility and, and mm -hmm. give back programs and things like that. I reached out to a nonprofit 
who somebody had recommended, please donate in my honor to this organization. I reached out to them and they said, and I said, how do I donate to you? Because I couldn't find it on their website. Mm -hmm. And they said, they're a climate organization. And they said, well, unless you're giving $100,000, we're not going to accept your money. Like they didn't even have a mechanism. They said, go give it to the, one of these organizations. It's like, go away, plebe. Your money is no good here. And, and it's Don't like, give us whoa. Your dirty money. So I, I like emailed it to the guy who made the recommendation. I'm like, what do you want me to do? And it's like, go Rainforest Trust. I was like, all right, that's, I know I can give to them. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's the thing. Like, like if we internalize that portion, then it leads to the other side of of what the generosity crisis, I believe, is flagging. And again, I still need to read the book, folks. I, I, have read enough um, uh, on it. And and the other piece is that we're losing that personalized touch. Yeah. We're being overtaken by Amazon, knowing that we're we need to reorder diapers. You know, mm-hmm. because uh, my Fitbit shows that I'm not sleeping enough or something like weird crap, right? Mm-hmm. With all the data. And it used to be that we were the vanguards. And I love how they framed this last night at the event that that nonprofits are the vanguards of generosity. Mm. We, we, we are at the forefront of what the best of humanity should be. That that's that's what we should aspire to be. And and where we're losing that is we're communicating with people in ways that are transactional and turn them uh, into the money. They don't focus on the person. Mm. And so where the, the, the concern is, is that for-profit companies are going to outpace that and have more trust put in them where somebody feels that they can do better for climate change by buying Patagonia mm. than actually helping, you know, like yeah. polar bear conservation organization. Yeah, people are deep in the trenches of, of that work. It's not that people aren't generous. Whenever we hear that household giving is down, it's it's referencing 501c3 money, but the giving keeps going up. The issue is that the formal wow. investments are being driven by increasingly more rich people. Right. And so folks who want to do more of an entry level support, because that's what they can afford, because the data yep. is clear that it doesn't matter what someone's class is, what someone's race is, gender, sexual identity, household configuration doesn't matter everyone is generous mm. the data is very clear about that huh. it's where they want to put that generation yeah. z is one of the most generous uh, uh generations in terms of their affinity and and knowledge of social causes than we've ever seen it's like everyone i i when i did my tedx talk at my old high school that was weird. And so I was next to two high schoolers and one of them had started a nonprofit already. Mm-hmm. And we might bristle at that, folks. We might say, well, the young should go and search for an existing nonprofit. It's like, 
I mean, that's a decent debate about efficiency, but when you get down to it, you got to tap into that passion. They're starting it because they feel that they're not being hurt. Yeah. And that's well, where the real crisis is. Well, I think in going back to your situational, relational and identity that there's almost a, it sounds like there's a, a, a more blatant hunger for identity giving. And if it's not there, then they're out or people might continue to be out. Um, right. That to your point, even around, I mean, eight out of 10, 80% of first time donors don't come back. Uh, like there's a clear gap here and, and it, and, and it sounds like one of the pains that you're getting into here is, is that if you're not focusing around creating a generosity experience around identity based giving, then you're probably sitting in that 80% in a sense, or, or the donors that are giving to you are in that 80%. Because uh, the the desire to be in identity giving is like, if you're not creating that space for me, then I'm out. I'm not going to like go along with it just, you know, because of my friend or yep. another situation. It's like, no, I, I just don't want that. The reason, remember that I, I talk about it as a generosity experience from beginning to end. Because every relationship has an end. Life is transient, right? Mm -hmm. And so even... The relationship ends ultimately either because the donor no longer wants to give or they have passed away. And then they have left a bequest. Okay. So let's, let's be very real about that, that death is a part of this in terms of it. There's always an end to the relationship. And that can be scary to think about it holistically from an existential standpoint. But let's talk about brass tacks of actual money when it comes to this. And so the reality is that if we look at the data, Dr. Adrian Sargent flagged that the reasons people stop giving are basically all communications related, all of them. And that includes death. I didn't leave a bequest to this nonprofit because I either didn't know about it or I wasn't asked or I was asked and this isn't something that I really identify with. I've already been asked to leave things in my will 40. I was like, I'm not, no, I'm not ready to think about that. <laughs> not yet. there yet. <laughs> I'm not there yet. Right. So, so yeah. that's the thing. It's about that, that stuff compounds. And so even memory is fluid. People can say all the time, I have you ever gotten a reply to a newsletter and somebody replies and that's part of your response rate in terms of marketing. Reply rate is an actual thing, which is how many emails do you send out and how many people actually reply? That's a real thing because it's qualitative data as opposed to quantitative. You can see somebody going, I have a question or unsubscribe, I never got on this list. And so if somebody does that, you can look, go back to something like your CRM and say, but they did give. They gave $13 to a peer-to-peer -peer campaign five years ago. How do they not remember us? People forget all <laughs> oh, the time. Totally. The the Daniel Kahneman is a is a psychologist that did experiments on on what people remember. Thinking fast and slow is the book that he cites this. I like that book, yeah. Love that book. And and uh Francesco Ambergetti also wrote about this and hooked on a feeling from a charitable 
lens. And so that's the one that got me really hooked on on Daniel's thing. And Francesco's book is a lot more accessible. I can barely actually get through uh, Daniel Kahneman's book itself. But I've read this part and understand this part very deeply, which is that people have memory that basically doesn't remember the average of an experience. Like in this podcast, many of you might be like, this dude is rambling and I need to like get to the too long didn't read, right? Like, let's say that's something that you're going to be like a memory of. I want you to remember this, this one thing out of this entire podcast. People remember a high or a low of an experience and how it ends. That's it. You can have the worst beginning of a relationship with a donor where it, the average time it takes to make a donation online is four minutes in our sector. That means people are like, they could be, they've could have blown through a Starbucks order and signed up for three streaming services by the time that they finish one donation in our sector. (laughs) That's what we mean by the businesses yeah. are overtaking the experience side. So, right? So if people still convert, this is classy data, I believe, on the conversion rate. That means that there's a lot of people who, yes, bounce off, but the yeah. people who convert, they, they sit through and suffer through for four minutes. So it, it means that we're all there. And, and if you start the relationship poorly if you somehow then go you know what i'm going to make the rest of this generosity experience wonderful for them i'm going to send them a video i'm going to do a handwritten note all these different things that make them feel like a person that's where it really clicks that's where that's how we can actually start to address all of these different things that's great I mean, a so lot of if this... you remember, if you remember one thing, folks, end on a high, have a high note during the relationship. That's that's basically it. Mm-hmm. It yeah. all flows from that. Because that's, that's how I mean, everything we... matters. Yeah, we see this in our. Uh, I mean, a lot of our work around yeah. facilitating and experience design um, mm-hmm. is very similar. Like we always. As an example, we always close with heart is what we call it coming out of the neuroscience from Dr. Daniel Friedland uh, is we don't end with with uh, tasks and surveys and tactical strategic things. We end with a space of reflection and belonging. Yeah. And and which partly gets back into some of what you were talking about, too, around that connectedness. Mm -hmm. Help people feel they feel connected. And then they may not remember the details of the experience, but they remember feeling something. I feel that that one at our heart, what we should be training people to be is generosity experience designers, that Mm -hmm. they're not fundraisers. They're not marketers. I mean, a glorious world in the future is that that titles actually on resumes are generosity experience designers right Mm, or you're certified in that type of thing and what that means is that you're thinking about the holistic potential of generosity that somebody can have from indicating a passion for the cause on which newsletter that is tailored to their impact yeah down to volunteering all the way to peer-to-peer fundraising or giving day participation or you know buying tickets for the gala all these different things rolled up into an understanding that ex- entire experience right yeah and so 
if we think of ourselves as designers, then you also need that space for reflection, experimentation. You need to have that that yeah. buy-in from your leadership to allow you to fail. Yep. So I feel that if we the, the folks who kind of embrace the fact that that they're designing this journey specific to their cause and that core why the ones who then actually can click on the tech side i i think it's going to be these really interesting hybrid experiences if i like had a crystal ball in five years in the future like like tap your your watch and your giving wallet automatically matches you with like you know the cause during the giving day Hmm. and then from there they're building out this like you know different communications flow to make sure that you know what's up but it's a small community organization it might be seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in like colorado yeah right Mm -hmm. but they uh have the tech that that's helped automate all of this yeah right like and and it's all starts from you know the fact that there was like a festival outside and there was an interface that had all of this yeah and it's done securely so people feel that that they can trust it right because (laughs) there's transparency in the reporting like all of this stuff is interconnected all of it's interconnected i i see that as a possible world so you're getting into the next normal. What are uh, a couple quick pieces around what is this next normal then? I mean, we've, we've hit on like people not focusing on the person. They focus on the money. I love the copy example that yeah. you used earlier. Um, they're not thinking about this like an experience. They're thinking about it, you know, whether they are like it or many fundraisers like it or not. They're thinking about it more like a transaction. And again, that then translated translates into things like the copy as an example. Yes. Um, what is the next normal? If I'm a fundraiser of a small shop, of a small organization and in a community and, you know, what do I need to be thinking about in order to like actually lead in this next normal as a fundraiser? Four things, four things. So they align with the principles with an underlying focus on data driven success. Okay. So that's, that's, that's the kind of the foundation here. Look, I work for a, a data company you know, a platform that provides multiple things for for pretty much every element of the generosity experience, website, CRM, events, peer-to-peer, yada, 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 right? Yep. Not a commercial folks, don't worry about that. But the reality is that we look at different metrics and are even going through a pretty rigorous assessment of what are the key, like if we said three things, right? Like what are the three main things that people need to understand? you gotta be data driven in your approach so looking at things like growth in giving which is basically net gains and losses in both donors and revenue different buckets are you losing a lot of small donors that might have a later impact for your major donor pipeline you got to be data driven so Mm -hmm. so that's item number one but but you start with your small organization you start with what who do you know who's in your database and ask like, why, (laughs) why are they there? And can you bucket that out into, let's just say three different groups, right? So we have, let's say you're an animal organization. You have people who are passionate about conservation, people who are passionate about the literal animal. Yep. And then you maybe have people who are, are kind of 
potpourri, right? It's, it's uh, you know, less affinity, mm-hmm. lower affinity, high affinity down to lower affinity, just bucketed into three, like mid affinity two. So what happens is if you start to understand that, then you can understand why they start giving. And you can do simple things that transition into the second thing, which is the actual uh, giving experience. Generosity experiences, of course, we want friction at certain points, friction to to challenge the donor, to, to, to have them think about the problem and say, how can I be a part of this solution? Mm-hmm. That's good friction. Bad friction is they get to the form and they have no way to, to how they're supposed to give to you. Right, I need to go right. to a contact us page that then routes me to a PayPal button eventually, right? Right. So frictionless giving comes in when you actually want to hit you know, the button or send the check. So thinking about that experience and making it as smooth as possible is then the next big thing to focus on. But you can add a field on your donation form that says, how did you, why, what, what drove you to give today? Yeah. And have it as open text field. And, and you can get some interesting information and going back to the animal example, uh, a, a consultant friend of mine, Michael Buckley, was telling me a story how he ha- he works with animal organizations, and one of his clients served a particular type of animal, and somebody on a very similar question answered that they love a completely different animal, and that's why they gave. And it's like, well, whoopsie, somebody <laughs> doesn't understand what they gave to, but but that's kind of the affinity thing it's like well they were driven for some reason right yeah so you have to then decide are those outliers or those trends to pay attention to and that's where the data comes in and then the final thing is what's the how do you continue the story a lot of people they design a campaign they end the campaign and there's no narrative tie to the next chapter keep telling the story you're storytellers this is what designing is yeah it's ultimately it's just a big story mm-hmm. and so th- from there it's like where can i use technology to automate some of the story and then that l- frees up time for me to come in and personalize it even further mm-hmm. okay i'm gonna pick up the phone now i'm gonna leave a thing well, stuff like that you know tim you're reminding me too of from our world of experience design uh and the primary methodology we use is something called appreciative inquiry um, and appreciative inquiry based fundraising is, is incredibly powerful. And it, it gets into some of those questions that you're asking, but where you literally ask people these questions, like, you know, you've, you've given to us, you know, you gave to us last year and I just want to reach out and why is it, why was it important that you gave to us? You could give to so many different nonprofits, but why is it important that you gave to us? And like literally ask them, it's my, one of my favorite questions to ask any form of, um, in an experience that I we're doing with a board or whomever is literally the why question. And, and it's one of the, it's one of the greatest gifts that somebody who gave to you can give to you, which is not their money, but actually is why they're giving in the first place. That is an incredible gift that they're giving to you. Yes. And to your point, Tim, if you don't know why somebody is there, you may literally just reach out. Hey, can I take 15, 20 minutes of your time? I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions and have nothing ask oriented, but um, in terms of asking for money, but just digging into being curious about their specific life and why this matters to them. So I, lo- I love where you're going with that, Tim. Audience design starts 
nearly everything because if you know who you're talking to you then you can understand what you're you're trying to say yeah and for, for me especially where i think there's a gap in the market is around that design for small shop organizations who are overworked they're trying to do 100 things and they only have time for 10 you got a lot of folks out there that easily cover the 3% of nonprofits that make $5 million or more. Mm -hmm. What about the 97% that make under 5 million? So that's, that's where I focus because the rest of the market's pretty well covered and you can get, you know, for, for, for me, I think there's a lot of great things out there. We're, we're proud for instance, to partner with Bloomerang donor, perfect Kila on the fundraising effectiveness project. Yeah. Those are all great systems to look at. If you are working with an Excel spreadsheet, look at any of those, please. (laughs) Get data-driven. And and from there, you can start to take a mix of that qualitative feedback in the conversations that you have and validate that against the larger data trend itself. Does the money bear it out? Mm Mm-hmm. It's 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 in and so designers understand both leading and lagging indicators. Mm-hmm. Everybody looks at lagging right now. Lagging is the money came in. Leading is, I think, the money will come in because, mm-hmm. and that's the part that we are really bad at in our sector. In, yeah. So where to get to the you know, the new normal. Mm-hmm. We got to look at that part because we're too focused on the lagging right now. Ultimately. Yeah. So l- last question, Tim, here uh, is one of my favorite questions is, you know, I'm a, a I'm a fundraiser. I'm at a, a an organization under five million to your point. I love that. Like we're that's a lot of the area that we focus to is the smaller organizations. And, you know, but I've got, as you said, a hundred things to do and I only have time for 10 and I really need to do three, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, hitting on a, like gathering the data and I'm, I'm, I'm behind it's year end, it's year end fundraising right now. And I, there's too many things. I was just talking to a fundraiser yesterday, literally yesterday about this. The question is, is what's made possible in my life as a fundraiser, if I'm able to sometimes I think about the idea of the joy set before us. Like if we, where do we want our pain? Do we want it later on or do we want it now? Like to just choose to say no to certain things, to say yes to that. We let our nose create uh, the more uh, deeper meaning for our bigger yeses. But what's made possible if I'm a fundraiser and I actually lean into this, into creating generosity experiences, what's really made possible for me, for the organization, for the donor, from your perspective. Well, one, I, I'm going to give a shout out to Robin from Peloton, who has the no is my yes uh, framing. <laughs> oh, I love that. So, so that, that I love. Um, I mean, what's made possible is is that we can start to, on an individual organization level, you could start to properly project out where sustainability is going to be not everybody has to be a three million five million ten million dollar nonprofit. you you can have it where you're serving your community and reflecting that your community and partnering with other organizations toward a larger initiative and 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 be fine with that and also we need to be fine with ending the story 
Not every nonprofit needs to exist. And if you can do more good by putting your energy into collaboration, we're going to see more mergers and acquisitions of different nonprofits. I've seen some really interesting things where, uh, uh, for instance, Ullman Foundation, they're a teen cancer organization been using us and working with us for a long time and and what they've been able to do is actually identify smaller youth charity runs and events and they acquired those as assets and you could do this folks this is not only legal it's 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 really innovative stuff and they acquired the assets of those races and simply rebranded them as dedicated programs mm-hmm. and it, and not just fundraising programs everything's centered around building that community around youth cancer uh, patients and so when you can think about that in a sustainable and an abundance way and not worry about if you're going to be able to keep the lights on generosity experiences help unlock that because people stick around Mm-hmm. People people start to give in recurring donations. We did massive recurring donation research on our on on uh, small to mid-sized organizations. That's who mainly uses our software. And we found that the smaller nonprofits perform better at recurring donation programs than the larger nonprofits in our data set. And it was the largest analysis of recurring giving that that has ever been performed. Wow. University of Dallas professor looked at it and and when she looked at it professor searing she found that people were given on average 64 dollars a month you compound that out 12 12 months per donor that's a big deal yeah so this is very very uh, achievable where we can we can really start to solve some larger problems well and it sounds like too what's made possible for uh the fundraiser itself, the, the, this person who's sitting there in that seat, right? Um, is it sounds like they're able to, it makes their jobs easier yes. overall, right? It's not going back to your eight out of 10 first time donors don't come back and the cost to acquire that and the headache to acquire that. And the, you know, I mean, everybody's in urine giving right now. And well, you know, if you're based on your data, Eight out of the ten of those first-time givers that are going to that are coming into year-end giving tonight right now aren't going to come back. Like none well, of us want that, you know. Well, and, <laughs> so, and well, and 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 we had to take it a step further. The unfortunate thing is that our sector ends up focusing only on the donor data, and and so let's take and join that with another data set, which is that the average tenure of a fundraiser in our sector is 18 months. I wonder if those two things are connected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, and yeah. so we have to keep investing into burnout. the burnout. We have to address the, the, the mental health of people and the wellness of people and the, the equitable treatment of people for pay equity or or representation of uh, you know folks of color and LGBTQ organizations. There's so many things, man, yeah. and that's not enough time. We don't have enough time for that. So I'm well, I'm gonna, gonna I'm actually, gonna dial it back right now. Well, we actually did a uh, just as a, a brief 
piece here. We did a podcast the other day on the case for leadership development, and the, the data is definitely suggesting uh, and clear. It's both our primary data around our Thriver program, as well as uh, community program, as well as the secondary data around this, is that if we are not investing in leadership development around this work, it is literally a bad investment. That One of the stats that we use is uh, from, I think it's from Gallup, and it said $3,400, 34% of any nonprofit um, employee's salary is essentially lost due to disengagement if they're in a burnout state. It's completely lost. Might as well throw it away. And so if we think about this... Put that uh, in the show notes, man. Yeah, Put that in the show notes. It's, it's a massive issue and the lack of investment in leadership development. I could definitely go on and on about that. Um, but it's a podcast that we talked about a little bit ago around the case for leadership development that cool. it's literally a bad investment. Uh, but totally with you. Like what's made possible is people not getting burned out, right? Enjoying their jobs, staying around a lot longer, uh, you know, not having that turnover that you were talking about. Exactly. Um, all right, last thing. This is like rapid round, like quick fire. Okay. If they, if they, to your no is my yes, if they needed to say no to everything and yes to two things, what would you suggest if I'm a fundraiser to create a generosity experience? What are the two things that people need to do? Uh, accurately assess your tech readiness and your organizational buy-in for tech implementation to design the experience and automate the experience. So being ready for things like a good website, a connected CRM, a financial integration, being ready for that, and then executing on that, where the tech accelerates the core story that at its core, if you stripped all the technology out of it, would still be stellar, just not scalable tech will scale it mm-hmm. and so join those two things and we're we're cooking we're cooking awesome. with gas hey tim so good to be here with you my, my friend i Same. appreciate your uh your wisdom your authenticity uh the way you i i love your newsletters on linkedin and they're just insightful and so thank you uh, I'm just really grateful to have you on this podcast and to share. I mean, I, I took a lot out of this myself. I'm, I fundraise myself yeah. and, you know, even as the CEO of Thrive Impact, like I'm, I'm fundraising, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I've noticed, uh, I need to shift into identity get based giving. I have some, yeah. a little too much relational, a little bit of situational. I need to make some shifts myself. So this is insightful for me. Oh, I, and I, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't even get on my high horse about, uh, financial reconciliation, but that's, that's, that's another day. Oh, another, another podcast, Tim. Another podcast. And I have, there's smarter people than me on that. Awesome. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you, Tim. Have a wonderful day, my friend. Okay, you too.